Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, you're listening to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. Welcome to the This is How Economic Policy Was Made Back When Economic Policy Made Sense edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with Jason Furman, who is the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama from 2013 until the end of the Obama administration earlier this year. Before that, he was the deputy director of the president's National Economic Council from the start of the Obama years back in 2009. Our conversation focuses on the process of economic policymaking within the presidency, but we also get into Jason's background his thoughts on how best to communicate economic ideas to the public, which is something he noticeably emphasized quite a bit as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. And we discussed his views on a few contemporary economic topics as well. A quick word about some of the acronyms you're going to hear in this episode. When President Obama was directly advised on economic policy, very often the people at the table would be first the director of the National Economic Council or NAC, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, as I just mentioned, or CEA, the Treasury Secretary, and the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB. And they would each bring a deputy, and they were sometimes joined by the White House Chief of Staff, especially if it was a crisis period, and the Vice President's Chief Economist. And it was the job of the National Economic Council Director, where Jason was Deputy Director in those early years, to wrangle and coordinate everyone's ideas into a coherent policy recommendation for the President. While it was the job of the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, or CEA, to oversee a staff of 30-something economists to provide sound economic analysis and options for what to recommend to the president. So, all that in mind, here is my chat with Jason Furman, former chair of the CEA under President Obama. Jason Furman, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is my favorite economic podcast, so I'm pretty excited. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me excited. Very flattering. Here's where I want to start. I was intrigued to learn in another podcast that you did that at various points in your early career, or maybe when you were a grad student, you studied under both Greg Mankiw and Joe Stiglitz, right? So two people on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. And I'm wondering if you self-define as a mix of those two economic approaches. I think of myself as eclectic. Now, you add up the set of views, and more of them are to the left of center than the right of center. But I like to think about things pretty independently. And I think the most important thing I got by having a range of mentors is that I really try hard not to be dismissive of ideas, think that they're obviously wrong, think that the person only thinks them because of some venal or self-interested reason. I think people think all sorts of things that are wrong, but try not to start from that conclusion, but get myself there. So to be even more specific, though, because when I look at some of the papers that you published while you were CEA chair, you did pay attention, for instance, quite a bit to the supply side, 
You wrote about things like land use policies, which you thought were too restrictive. You wrote a lot about occupational licensing and how it has both benefits, but also quite a few costs if it goes too far and it represents an entry barrier to the labor market. So you do seem like a mix of the sort of left of center Stiglitzian concern, right? Uh, For people, like you attach a lot of importance to inequality, for instance, but you also have like a Mancuvian, if that's the right uh, descriptor, concern for the supply side as well. And I should tack on free trade as an issue where I'm pretty sure you disagree with Stiglitz and you agree with Mancu. Right. So I believe in competition. I believe in markets. And I don't think either of those happen automatically or all by themselves. I think there's a really important role for the government. Sometimes that means doing things less stupidly, like not having occupational licensing restrictions. If the government did less there, people would be more able to get a better job, more able to move from place to place, and less able to overcharge their customers, all three of which would be good. But I think it also sometimes means an affirmative role for government. For example, a vigorous antitrust policy, the degree to which we've dialed back on antitrust in the last decades, I think has made us less strong as a competitive market economy. I, by the way, count trade as a pro-competition policy. I think a lot of the interests against trade are rent-seeking. There are particular segments of the economy that benefit from the protections. And one of the great things trade does, it's not what we want to brag about, is it makes our companies face more competition. And I think when they face more competition, American consumers are served better and our companies themselves become more innovative. This was, I think, an underemphasized benefit of the TPP agreement, which uh, you wrote in favor of. The idea that by exposing ourselves to more competition, essentially we're like importing productivity-enhancing competition, that, that that is one of the things that we're bringing in. That is actually a very useful thing to import, even though it's sort of abstract. And I think it's something that a lot of people aren't quite aware of precisely because it's not really tangible. Yeah, you see this in trade. You see this in a variety of areas. The thing that's most important for the economy is productivity growth, and in particular, total factor productivity, the efficiency with which you can use a given amount of capital and labor. But our ability to model and quantify what exactly affects TFP is really quite rudimentary. So I think one of the benefits of trade is that you get to specialize in certain areas. So rather than building microprocessors and memory chips, you get good at one of those and you buy the other one. There's a classic Ricardian argument for that, that you know we produce the thing we have a comparative advantage in. But then there's a more sophisticated argument that if you're just focused on microprocessors, you'll actually figure out even better ways to make microprocessors. You'll become more innovative in the production and design of microprocessors, and you'll actually not just be able to import the cheaper thing and make what's in your comparative advantage. You'll be able to actually deepen that comparative advantage and have it grow over time. I think that's one of the big benefits from trade that we're just beginning to be able to model and, and quantify. There's a reason I, I wanted to start by asking you about your eclectic approach to economics. And it's that I wanted to ask if you think that economists, in a way, cripple themselves if they self define by their like political approach. In other words, like the idea that you might agree with Republicans on some things, I think can be quite useful to you as somebody who works in democratic administrations. 
And I wonder if you think that there just isn't enough of that, especially for economists who, as you did, alternate between, say, academia and going to work in politics. Yeah, I think that a certain amount of economic policy analysis commentary has become more of a team sport than I think it should be. So if you find a study that agrees with your position, it's a brilliant study regardless of whether it's very good. If you find a study that disagrees with your position, uh, you want to figure out what's wrong with it before you take it seriously. And I, and I think that's, that's a mistake. I mean, I, for example, support the minimum wage. If really good research came out documenting you know, how it was a bad idea, I'd really want to know that. Because I really care about the people who are affected by the minimum wage, and if it's affecting them adversely, I wouldn't want to continue to support it. That's not my reading of the evidence to date, but I continue to have an open mind, and and to some degree, it's almost a mystery, and I think a sort of pleasant surprise that the evidence so far is that the minimum wage has relatively small effects on employment. I think there's one way, by the way, that universities are better. If you go into a seminar at Harvard, and you reach a conclusion that's you know, really conservative, and Robert Barrow, who's pretty conservative, thinks that your research methodology was flawed, he's going to tell you that. He's not going to say, oh, you agreed with my conclusion, so I like your paper. The incentives in academia are much more towards finding flaws, pointing out things that were wrong, asking smart, tough questions. The closer you get to Washington, though, the more this team sport mentality kicks in, and that, I think, lends itself less to to rational thought. Can we talk about what it was like to make economic policy in the Obama administration? Let's start with the early years, okay? You came in as Larry Summers' deputy at first. Larry was the head of the NEC at the time. I'm actually just curious to know what the protocol was like. So you're in the room with the rest of the economic team. So first of all, who else is there? And then what happens when the president walks in the room and says, what do you guys have for me? So, I mean, it was a terrible time for the U.S. economy, but I'd be lying if I didn't say it was a really interesting time to be doing economic policy. The president has long had a daily national security briefing, although I think this president may have dispensed with it. Um, For the first two years or so of the Obama administration, he had a daily economic briefing. And at that, you'd have about sort of four to eight members of the economic team, depending on what the issue was. But you'd always have the heads of CEA, NEC, Treasury, and OMB present. I helped actually organize the material for a lot of those briefings, was responsible for making sure that you know the material was teed up, that it was done in a, in a good way, that it made sense, and we'd rotate around um, who was the primary people preparing those and, and presenting, and I certainly did a number of times um, myself. That's the responsibility of the NEC is to make sure that everybody's coordinated. So you've got, at the time before you joined uh, CEA, the chair of the CEA is there, somebody representing the Treasury, the usually Treasury the Treasury Secretary, Secretary yes. probably there, right? Yeah. Uh, you said OMB. That's and that would be the OMB of, director, yeah. Yes, uh, Office of Management and Budget, right? And maybe one or two deputies from each of those, and that's where you yep. get the eight or nine yeah. people. Right? Yeah, and then oh, and then Jared Bernstein, who is the vice president's chief economist, right? Should not right. have forgotten him. An important right. part okay. of, so, of all of those. And since NEC is supposed right. to coordinate, but NEC everybody. is coordinating, right? right. So okay. NEC does. You know, the idea of the creation of NEC, and it, this is the textbook version, and and like all textbook versions, 
the reality can sometimes be closer and sometimes be further, is that it tees up decisions for the president. So the meetings are called by the NEC director. The NEC director sets the agenda for those meetings. The NEC director decides who is at the meeting. But then people will come in. Usually when we were working on the Recovery Act, for example, item one of the agenda would be a macroeconomic analysis of where we are and what the impact of fiscal policy would be. That would be Christy Romer. She would come in with a little presentation, an analysis, share that with all of us. For our overseas listeners, the Recovery Act, uh, a.k.a. the stimulus package. The stimulus package from 2009. Then there might be another section on the agenda for what role could tax cuts play in stimulus And maybe I would be the one who was presenting some analysis on that. And then there would be another one of what are the long-term fiscal consequences it would have for the budget deficit. And Peter Orzag, who was then the director of the Office of Management and Budget, responsible for those issues, would be the one that would present that. But that ultimately was the NEC director's job to wrangle all of that. And the idea being that when you go to the president, you could have a unified group recommendation doesn't mean he'd take it. He often didn't. You might have that. Or you might have different options. But rather than 12 different options, maybe you'd boil it down to two or three. And you'd present pros and cons. And I might disagree. You know, let's say I supported option A. I might not like option B. But I'd agree that all the pros and cons were factually correct. I just would weight them differently or consider one more important than another. So you're not going in with the president and arguing over, for example, the basic facts. This is an interesting point. I want to bring up an anecdote that was reported sometime later in the New York Times, where there was a discussion about which parts of the auto industry to potentially bail out. It was an early conversation. And Austin Goolsby, who I think at the time was at CEA, he wasn't chair yet. He was right? a member of the He was a member of CEA. And in front of the president, he brought up a kind of extra caveat or something like that. And then after the meeting was over, Larry Summers, the NEC director, grabbed him in the hallway and said something like, you never relitigate in front of the president, that kind of thing. And I guess I'm wondering, how certain did you have to be going into those meetings? And did the president ever say, just give me your final answer. I don't want to hear the alternatives. You guys figure it out because my time is, you know, valuable. Uh, what kind of interaction did you have with the president right. once that meeting started? We got better at it over time. I mean, early on, for example, the president wanted us to do something to help facilitate lending to small businesses and unfreeze the credit market for small businesses. And we got into big debates with each other over exactly how to design that lending program. And we wrote him a memo with all sorts of design details of, you know, who would do the guarantee and how much would be guaranteed and what agency would do what and all that. And we went into a meeting with him. And he was rightfully a little bit irritated with us. He's a really smart guy. If he had had time, he probably could have figured it out as well as any of us. But, you know, believed in comparative advantage. And it was our comparative advantage to figure out this program. And so we got a little bit pushed in the direction of stop arguing with me about these details, just go right. off and figure it out. Gently um, chided, you right, might say. Right, gently chided. Um, and, then, and again, that's part of the job of the NEC. You don't elevate every issue to the president. You try to triage them. And the design of a particular program would be a good example of something that's an excellent candidate for triage. And in general, a lot of times you would go into President Obama with option A, B, and C, and he wouldn't pick one of the three. He would say, here's what I'm trying to achieve, here's my goals, here's the downside, give you a whole bunch of material to work with, and then you'd go back 
and you'd come up with an option D that would be derived from A, B, and C, but consistent with the guidance, and then maybe even send in a memo, you know, this is what we think you want based on the conversation we had. Do you agree with it or disagree with it? Sometimes he'd say yes. Sometimes he'd say, actually, come back and, and let's do another round. Yeah, that, that relates to my next question, which was how iterative is the process of coming up with the formal policy package that you want to pursue? I think back to the sort of frenetic period when the stimulus was being put together, and it had a number of components. It had you know, tax cuts. It had spending on certain issues. Um, it had some things that were meant to stimulate the economy right away and some things that would happen a bit later. And I guess I'm, I'm just curious to know how that actually comes together. Was that triaged by you guys or was that a thing of like going to the president, he says no, and then you go back and then Rahm Emanuel, who at the time was chief of staff, says, no, this will never happen. So take that out and put something else in. How does it end up getting actually constructed and framed? What kind of right. details can you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, and, and one thing to understand about President Obama's style is he's really good at absorbing new information in writing, and he's really good at talking at a bigger level about things. And what he's not good at is sitting there patiently listening while you read through a 20-page PowerPoint information packet packed with factual information that he's, like, already gotten to page 20 and figured out, but you're still, like, reading him word for word on page two. So um, one thing we learned early on is get him a good memo. He'll read that. You know, early on, we would sometimes create an appendix to the memo that would be quite long. And I, from academia, thought appendix means don't read this unless you're, like, the research assistant trying to reproduce it. And we would get back his handwritten marginalia on our memos. we get those before the meetings because they'd come back from um, what's called staff secretary. And I discovered he'd read these appendices. And then I started to feel like he's trying to make a decision at whether to do a surge in Afghanistan. And he's reading my appendix on small business lending programs. You know, what have I, what have I done to the world? I need to control myself. So, um, so sometimes long. I mean, a, a key memo in the designing the Recovery Act and the economic strategy during the transition was 56 pages long. Now, certainly the record that I was involved with on the economic side. Um, So you get him that in advance. And then the meeting itself is not presenting specific factual information. He's gotten that already. It's doing a back and forth discussion about how it all fits together. And that is necessarily iterative in two senses. One, to come up with the best idea is an iterative process. And you can't usually do that in one meeting on anything important. But second of all, just like war, those plans would meet, for example, the U.S. Congress. And the U.S. Congress wouldn't like this part and would like that part. And then you have to go back. I mean, you you try to game out a step or two ahead, but you can never game out the sort of crazy ways that things bounce. So you need to do during especially things like the fiscal cliff and the debt limit, a lot, a lot of daily, multiple times a day back and forth with him. Did he uh, challenge you often in those meetings? Because he's known for his technocratic approach and also for soliciting alternative points of view. And I'm wondering how fast on your feet you had to be when those meetings started. If I was quiet from beginning to end of the meeting, I was in serious danger of being called on to say, like, are you being quiet because you agree with everyone, which is fine, or are you being quiet because you're sitting there stewing in disagreement and just didn't want to share it with everyone? 
And that's nothing special to me. That's the way he would conduct those meetings. He did want to hear from people and and less bound by hierarchy. It's not just the one person from each organization speaks for um, the organization. Larry was very good about this too. I could go into meetings and, and take a contrary view from Larry's. You know, generally want to understand that in advance, understand how it all fit together. And Austin would take different views from Christy Romer when she was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. So it wasn't quite as freewheeling as some of the descriptions of this White House have been, but it wasn't rigid, hierarchical, like sit in the back and, and be quiet sort of a thing for a deputy either. Yeah. And was it also on the NEC to smooth out wherever priorities would compete within the economic team itself? So if, let's say, the head of the Office of Management and Budget is worried about the long-term fiscal impact of an idea, and CEA just wants to pursue growth aggressively, and maybe Treasury thinks, yeah, okay, but it can't be too big because I've got this other thing where I'm trying to save the banks. Does it fall on the NEC to then say, okay, everybody stop for a minute. I'll try to get you each as much of what you want as I can. And I recognize all your arguments, but this is the policy package that we're going to recommend to the president. Some of that falls on the NEC and some of that falls maybe more on the White House chief of staff. And it depends where the conflict comes from. If the conflict is a pure policy one, I want to spend lots of money today to help growth. You want to cut the deficit a lot today These are two different policies, and that's a little bit more the NEC, either to find a middle ground or to define those really well as option A and option B, list the pros and cons, and and have a decision get made. A lot of the things, though, aren't of that nature. They're more of prioritization. So in 2009, the transportation secretary wanted to go all in on a new five- or six-year infrastructure bill, which was a great idea on policy. But others wanted to go all in on health care and on financial reform. And there was just only so much that Congress could do. So there needed to be a decision more like an air traffic controller and legislative prioritization than a pure policy decision. And something like that would be made more by the chief of staff or, or the president. And a lot of things were in that category. I have what might be kind of a weird question about something that Obama once said about himself and how he's portrayed in the media, but then ask uh, if it also applies to the economic policy team in those early years, especially because economic policy at the time was like such a vital part of what was happening mm-hmm. with the economy and the banking sector and, and free fall and you know, uh, possibly the rest of the world about to follow us into the abyss. I can't remember exactly where he said, so I have to like paraphrase it, but I, I remember that he said that, you know, When he sometimes reads about himself in the media or in books that are written about that period, there's this character, and I'm doing this in air quotes, Barack Obama, that he reads where all kinds of things are written about what he said or did, and then a lot of like motivations are attributed to him where he's like, I don't know what this, (laughs) where this is coming from exactly. And certainly it's understandable that there was so much interest in like figuring out just what the hell was going on at the time. But I'm wondering if this kind of like, cognitive dissonance ever set in for you where you were reading about what it was like to make economic policy as reported by someone else who might have like interviewed a few people off the record and tried to reconstruct the scenario where you were just like what the hell is this even referring to I don't recognize that or were you surprised maybe by how accurate it was in some cases I think 
a lot of the coverage has a lot of accuracy, but suffers from two big biases. The biggest bias, the one that I think is most consequential, is its bias towards stories of conflict and stories of disagreement. Whereas the vast bulk of the policymaking that I've been a part of has been a cooperative, collaborative endeavor as people were wrestling with tough problems that didn't have a single good answer. And somebody comes up with an idea and somebody else is like, here's why that idea doesn't work. But if you did this to it, maybe it would work a little better. And then a third person builds on that and that collectively something better comes out of it. And that's not something you read a lot about, but that was my daily experience. And when I was CEA chair, I did an awful lot of co-authored memos with Jeff Zients, who was the NEC director at the time, that would go to the president. And we had several arguments over the order that we would put our names on the memo. The arguments would go of the form me saying, Jeff, you should put your name first because you're the NEC director and you're organizing the process. And him saying, Jason, you did you know, most of the analysis in this one, so your name should be first. That's the opposite of the argument <laughs> that I think most people picture people are having in government. You know, In general, if somebody wanted to add their name to a memo I was involved with, I was thrilled. It added more weight and credibility if you had two or three people sending something in rather than just me, more than thrilled to share whatever, whatever credit one would get. So that's the first thing. I think the coverage underemphasizes cooperation. And then the second is more minor and more obvious, which is the coverage overrepresents people that talk to the reporters. So we weren't supposed to cooperate with books in the first couple of years. Somebody called me several times for a book. I never returned their call. I was barely in that book. Fine with me. They were doing a second book, came to me and said, quote, I would love to portray you more fully and fairly in the second book than I was able to in the first book, but I can't do that if you won't talk to me. So would you help me portray you fully and fairly? To me, that sounded a bit like a threat and not one I complied with. Did the president either when you were at NEC or even later when you were CEA chair, ever define his own economic philosophy, perhaps in a way that informed your own understanding of what your job should be? Or was it something that came through more piecemeal? He interviewed me before I joined. I was on the campaign before I was in the White House. And he did half an hour interview before I got that job on the campaign And much of that was me talking about my economic philosophy and and him talking about his. And I felt very in sync with it. He certainly believes very much in markets and competition. The world saw how hard he pushed for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's someone that believes deeply in human beings and their potential and that institutions and the structure of the economy can get in the way of their potential and that if you unlock that potential... It'll help the economy overall and help those people. And, you know, I think he's a little bit eclectic in his views as well. I guess those are some of the examples of them. But I don't know. I'm sure somebody could do a more articulate and well-thought-out version of his economic philosophy. For example, Barack Obama could do a much more (laughs) articulate and well-thought-out and well-reasoned version of his economic philosophy than I could. I mean, obviously, he made decisions I disagreed with. I agreed with the large majority of them. I certainly didn't agree with all of them. If I did, that probably would have meant I was brain dead. And and even, you know, disagreements, a lot of them would have been less at the philosophical level and more at a political judgmental level. And my view was 
if he understood the relative economic merits of option A, B, and C, but then decided option A, which I thought was the best, couldn't pass Congress and chose option B, that's totally legitimate judgment from my perspective. You know, or maybe even option A was a regulation, but it would so upset people you needed to get something even more important done, you'd go with option B. That was fine with me too. And the only thing that would have bothered me, and I'm thinking of just about no examples of it, would be if didn't have a chance to talk to him about those relative economic merit. You know, if I had thought like, oh, he chose option B in the absence of the full set of evidence and considerations, that would have worried me. But I felt that was rarely the case. So even where I disagreed, I, I thought it was quite well thought out. And you always had a channel reason. to communicate your disagreement. Yes. Can you give us an example or two uh, where like the thing that ended up being pursued differed from your initial recommendation? I don't have a specific example to share with you off the top of my head, but no. <laughs> I'll save that for my memoirs. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Can we talk about the stimulus package itself? I've become sort of obsessed with framing issues lately. And in terms of like how it was presented to the public and what would have been politically acceptable at the time, and then what everybody ended up thinking about it. It's so easy to now look back and pass judgments on it. But I've since noticed we, some people doing that. Yeah, for sure. But since we have more information about it, I guess I'm wondering uh, if you could go back and do it again with the information that we have now, how would you have structured it differently? And how would you have sold it differently? Which I think is a, is a pretty important thing, which uh, the president himself has talked about quite a bit also. In terms of the selling it ex ante, it was signed into law on February 17th, less than a month into office. It was the largest stimulus package this country has ever done as a share of the economy. And in that sense, I think the results speak for themselves. In terms of after that, I think the main problem, some say it was a communications problem. I think the main problem is the unemployment rate continued rising. It rose to 10% in the middle of 2009 and then stayed high. And that wasn't because of the stimulus. That was because the disease was even worse than anyone had appreciated. And so it's a little bit like blaming the aspirin for the fact that you're still sick after you take it. So I think that was the overwhelming problem. And I don't think that could have been solved with a better speech. I don't think that could have been solved with a different plan. So I think the big picture is impressive to have gotten it done, largely the right thing to have done, did not solve all the world's problems, but nothing could have. Um, if I go one level beyond that, though, I think we did not appreciate quite as much as maybe we could have the uncertainty facing the economy. And the way one could have incorporated that uncertainty is build more contingent plans into it. For example, you're going to get a tax cut every year until the unemployment rate is below 7%. Or you're going to get extended unemployment insurance as long as the unemployment rate in your state is above 7%. Things like that that would have automatically scaled up if the economy was in worse shape and scaled down if the recovery was faster than we would have thought would have not just helped us better address the Great Recession, but could have potentially even made them permanent policies so that we'd have better automatic stabilizers going forward as well. I'm going to share uh, something personal with you about what happened with the data in that time. 
a lot of people forget this, but the initial estimate for the GDP fall in uh, the last quarter of 2008 was much smaller than the later revised figure turned out to be. In other words, the economy was cratering a lot faster and a lot more deeply than we realized, but you have to make a decision in real time. And I had something of like an epistemological crisis about this later on because part of my job for a while was to write about the economy and what was happening. And I kept thinking, God, sometimes we just don't know. Like we're just off. Did you experience any kind of resentment in that regard that like (laughs) you didn't have better data at the time to properly use to make policy? And how do you get over like this epistemological issue of like, well, what if sometimes when we need to make these really important decisions, we don't necessarily have all the information we need to know? Although I will say that in the time since, a lot of commentary has come from this and a lot, and I think a lot of improvement has been made. Yeah. Look, I mean, economists, you know, get made fun of for not being able to predict the future, but we can't even measure the recent past. <laughs> I remember after 9-11, there was a big conversation of, is this going to cause a recession? The NBER eventually dated the recession as having started in March of 2001. So we were six months into a recession at a time when people were debating, are we going to go into a recession? Same thing in mid-2008 is Bear Stearns, is this going to cause a recession when in retrospect, the recession ended up being dated two months before Bear Stearns. So you really have serious issues with real-time data. In the Great Recession, we saw it both in GDP, but we also saw it in the jobs numbers, which looked quite bad at the time and subsequently revised to being particularly horrible. I don't know how consequential that was, though, in that our economic desire was for a larger stimulus plan than what Congress was willing to pass. And so we maxed out on what we could politically in terms of the size of the stimulus. I think the bigger issue is I would have thought that if a year after it, the unemployment rate was higher than expected, that would be an argument for Congress to do even more. Instead, for many, that became an argument that it didn't work, so we need to you know, do the opposite. So counting on Congress to come back and do what's needed as opposed to building in something automatic, that if the unemployment rate is still high, it happens, I have more fondness for that second route. Let's talk about then 2013, you become chair of the CEA. You now have a big staff to oversee. How did you feel about the new job description where you now have to jostle between still doing a lot of intensive economic work, but now you have a management role? Uh, Did that come naturally to you or was it intimidating? In some ways, it was intimidating. When I first worked at CEA in the Clinton administration, I worked for Joe Stiglitz. And I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize in economics. I left the more purely academic career quite early to go into public policy. And so I was nervous about that. But then I remembered that one thing I learned from economics was comparative advantage. And vis-a-vis the CEA staff, understanding how the Obama administration worked and how the Obama administration made economic policy and how I could take the talents of this excellent group of economists who sometimes can make great contributions but sometimes can be a little bit lost and not know how to interface in a highly political atmosphere – 
that my real comparative advantage was making the best of those economic resources, but integrating them in so they were both useful to the administration, but also able to get things done. But how big was the CEA staff when you were um, there? The staff's about 35, okay. of which the bulk of that are economists, either academics on leave from universities or graduate students or people who are out of college and likely to have graduate school in their future. Was there ever any tension between the CEA's role as the provider of analysis and communicating to the president what you thought was the best economics, right? In other words, what was Mm -hmm. economically sound on the one hand, and then communicating to the public on behalf of the president on the other hand? I think there's a little bit of tension. I tried to make sure that the research we did internally was unbiased, that we could come to the conclusion that such and such policy was not working, such and such idea was a bad idea, the economy was in trouble, you know, whatever it was that we should be able to reach those conclusions. And CEA has a long tradition of, you know, a lot of my predecessors say they love to say no. You know, that's the worst idea I've ever seen. I've never seen such a bad idea. So there's a little bit of a culture and tradition of doing that. I actually don't think that's the highest thing to aspire to, although one has to be willing to do that. So on the one hand, you want to be able to do that. Um, On the other hand, I had a big public-facing role. I did a lot of speaking, a lot of media. And if I had done research that discovered that the Affordable Care Act was destroying the economy, probably would not have been in a position to um, share that widely. Um, I never did such research. (laughs) And in fact, I think think the opposite (laughs) is the case. It's probably a bad example. So I think you want to make sure that what you're talking about publicly is, is true and credible, but it's probably only a subset of what you're thinking about and debating internally. And just because you have to give a speech on the economy, have that change your view for internal purposes, but vice versa. So Alan Greenspan, as I understand it, and, and my apologies to Sebastian Malaby as a friend and wrote what I understand to be an excellent biography that is sitting on my bedside. Um, as I understand, Alan Greenspan, for example, did very little public speaking when he was chair of the CEA because he didn't want to sort of contaminate the pure advice to the president with what you told the public. My view is it increased your credibility internally, if you know the Affordable Care Act, if I could defend it externally, that when I went into a meeting to say something about what I thought should happen on health, I would have more impact in that meeting because people knew I was on the team and, and helping, which is something I was very happy to be. My next question uh, is going to sound a bit like a superficial matter, but I actually think it's quite important. It seemed like in your papers and your speeches, the ones that you published while you were at CEA, that a lot of thought was given to like the presentation of them. And I'm wondering uh, if that was because you insisted on it or if it was because you had a talented deputy who made sure that these things would be easily digestible. Because that seems to be part of your legacy at CEA was to make sure that your communications with the public would stick to the extent possible. And that meant communicating all of this sometimes very dense, very wonky economic analysis uh, in a way that could be easily understood. So thank you for saying that, because I certainly am very proud about that part of what I did at CEA. I think we put out a lot of reports. I did a lot of speeches, op-eds that helped either push a debate along, get somebody interested in a topic, tie together the evidence and research out there. A lot of that benefited from an enormously talented team I hope I'm not bragging too much to say, 
for me, it was really it. important yeah. to s- make the graphs, you know, simple where possible, the phrasing simple where possible, you know, to go back through a paragraph and say, do you need 12 numbers there or can you write the same idea um, with two numbers and understanding that communicating with the public, the public defined as, as the same people that read Alphaville, um, I, I thought was a really important part of the mission and one that I was passionate about. This next thing I want to do is I want to read you a quote that President Obama gave to probably another one of your buddies, David Axelrod, on his way out on David Axelrod's podcast. I also used this quote in a recent episode in a totally different context. It was an, it was an interview with the social psychologist Robert Cialdini, uh, but you'll see why there's an overlap here. Here's what Obama said, quote, We've got to figure out how do we show people and communicate in a way that is visceral and makes an emotional connection as opposed to just the facts, because the facts are all in dispute these days, unquote. He said something similar in another podcast called Pod Save America, where he said, quote, have to think of new ways of communicating with the American people and don't be intimidated by the way things have been done to this point, unquote. And he was referring to what he wished he'd known when he went into the office, right? This idea that reason and coherent arguments and all that are necessary and important to inform what it is that you're communicating, but not enough, right? What do you think about that in terms of communicating economic ideas, which sort of by definition require a lot of rigor and a lot of dense analysis? How do you get that out there? And what have we learned about how necessary that is? So after the election, I knew a lot of people in the analytic policy want community that were really depressed because they felt we just had this whole election there had not been real substantive discussion. People hadn't really paid attention to the issues. And so what's the point of what I'm doing? Why am I doing any of this? What's the reason for it? If people just vote by identity preferences right. or tribalist reasons um, or whatever. And, you know, and I think there's a lot of truth to that description of what happened in the election. And elections are often like that. They're often all sorts of random things or emotional things or ads or all sorts of stuff. Um, that's, that's not fully rational. And I said two things to people after the election. I said, number one, when I think about this question for myself, there's only one thing I know how to do. There's only one thing I like doing, and there's only one thing that I'm at all decent at doing, and that's trying to understand the facts and talk about the logic and persuade people through rationality. And so that's what I'd continue doing. Um, Not that that's the best thing, um, but that's the best thing that I myself can do. But the second thing I said to people was my own experience with both campaigns and governing is campaigns are filled with all sorts of silliness. Governing is filled with a lot of silliness too, but you actually have more of a substantive policy debate when you're governing than when you're campaigning. And there's measurable outcomes. So just to give an example of that, during the campaign, there was not a whole lot of debate about what it would mean to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. It just was going to be something big, beautiful. I don't know what it was, something great. Afterwards, there was a specific piece of legislation. And the Congressional Budget Office looked at that specific piece of legislation and said it will mean, you know, 25 million more uninsured higher deductibles and many people paying more, in some cases $10,000 more. And that had a huge impact on the debate 
over the Obamacare repeal and replacement. That was a set of analysis and facts. It was done by a very nerdy group of people at the Congressional Budget Office. It was done with great integrity by them. And then it was reported everywhere. You know, the evening news had this piece of analysis, this fact. And the rational reaction to this fact was, oh, wait, maybe this isn't such a beautiful replacement. And so I thought that was a real vindication. That doesn't always happen. Of course, I think facts and analysis and rationality play too small a role in the debate. My answer to that is let's have even more facts, even more rationality. And I think with that, it can play a bit of a bigger role in the debate. It still won't be big enough, but but, but packaged in a way that's that sort of gives due attention to the way that people absorb and are convinced by information, right? Because that seems to me like one of the big lessons of the last year. Yeah. Oh, well, there's two things. I mean, you can do something in 140 characters or you can do something in a book. And both of those could be rational and fact-based or both of those could be emotional or irrational or wrong or lying or anything. So it's not just the, the length or whether something has even graphs or equations, you can be led astray by those as well. I think it's a little bit of a mode of thinking and self-criticism, and it goes back to where what we started with, that trying to understand where even your own side has gone wrong, where your preconceptions might be wrong. I want to turn uh, to some of those policy ideas now. A recurring theme in your research over the last couple of years has been what to do about the labor force, right? And specifically, how do you get people to participate more in the labor force, especially in the face of a, I think, six-decade-long decline in the male labor force participation rate? But now we also see that since I think about the year 2000, women have also been participating less in the labor force. So this has been like something that I think has preoccupied economists more and more in the last couple of years but not always easy to pinpoint the things that can help. You have a preferred suite of ideas that you've written about, active labor market policies. What would be your sort of ideal approach to this problem? So just to reiterate what you said in terms of defining the problem, in the 1950s, 2% of men between 25 and 54 were out of the workforce, giving up looking for jobs. Now it's 12%. That decline is largely in people with a high school degree or less. It doesn't reflect a choice that I think people have made, but a decline in the demand for their labor combined with institutions that have a harder time processing them and placing them into jobs. The diagnosis I gave you just in some sense dictates some of the policy answers. So number one is more education college degree not just has a hard, large premium associated with it for earnings in terms of inequality, it also makes it much more likely that you'll be employed, much more likely that you'll weather recessions. A second would be creating more demand for the types of workers that have had a harder time in the economy. Some more infrastructure investment could help people as you transition away from an economy dependent on manufacturing. A third, which you had in your question, was active labor market policies. These are policies like help you find a job, help train you for a job, give you a subsidy for being in a job. In the United States, we're spending only 0.2% of our GDP on those. Um, That's lower than any other OECD country except Chile or Mexico. 
And labor markets, just one lesson of looking around and looking across countries, is that they don't work as well as you want all by themselves. We do really well with free markets in the United States. We do less well with the connective tissue that helps train people and help them find their jobs. And then the last thing is set issues that are to some degree motivated by other things would have benefits here. Things like mass incarceration in the United States has really adversely affected the job market as well and people's ability to find employment. Are there any policy ideas for addressing that last one, specifically that there's this large group of previously incarcerated, usually it's men and very often African-American men, who really struggle to find jobs just because they're considered disqualified by their prison record. How do we get them back into the workforce? First of all, we should make less of this problem in the future by having criminal justice and sentencing reform and not having extremely long sentences for nonviolent first offenders, for example. So we shouldn't have been in this problem in the first place. As a public policy issue, that's a hard one to deal with. Some of the policies have trade-offs. There's this idea that you should ban the box. You should not be able to ask people at the outset of the application process whether they have a, a criminal history or not. And That helps some people, but if you're a black man who doesn't have a criminal background, it is more likely that someone will think that you'll be discriminated against against based on that, statistically discriminated against. So I think there's a lot of trade-offs and difficult things here. Some of it is just educating companies, educating people, and places like Coke Industries, for example, are doing a great job of that. One last topic, because we're running out of time. (laughs) I don't want to let you go without talking about the trillion-dollar coin. Were you at, still at NEC, or had you moved on to be the chair of the CEA when this debate started heating up in 2013, I believe? Uh, no, the platinum coin was originally in 2011, during the first debt limit. Right, but I think and, it, was, it was only seriously and then it was, the uh, second time around. Uh, like it was seriously considered in the blogosphere. It was never seriously <laughs> considered in the Obama administration. Okay. We have uh, to define the problem first, for especially for our overseas listeners, and just for people who forget. So real quick, I'll try to frame this. The U.S. has this weird system where... One process exists for determining how uh, the federal government will spend its money on various programs, right? There's a totally separate process for how much money the federal government is allowed to borrow in order to fund that spending that it has already approved, right? This exists for weird, quirky historical reasons that we won't get into, but when the borrowing amount starts getting up towards that limit. It's called the debt limit. It becomes a real problem because it means that the U.S. ends up in a situation where, not for lack of funds, it's essentially threatening to default, and it causes all these political standoffs. So that's where we are, and one potential solution to this problem, if Congress couldn't come together and raise the debt limit, was the trillion-dollar coin. Okay, Go, Jason, tell us what Sure. Happened. If you have an obligation to spend money, but you're not allowed to borrow and you don't have enough taxes for it, well, maybe you could just print up some money and buy it with that. Well, it turns out the statute, and I've read very few statutes, but I actually read this one myself, is very specific about you know what quarters look like, what nickels look like, how much they're worth, how much they weigh, all that type of stuff. But then it leaves up to the discretion of the Secretary of Treasury what they can do with platinum coins. And so others noticed this. I wasn't the discoverer of it. But I went and read the statute. It looked to me an awful lot like the United States could just 
take a platinum coin, stamp $1 trillion on it, bring it over to the Fed. I don't think you'd even need to be worried about being robbed because whoever tried to use that platinum coin, you'd probably know that that probably, they, know, where they, from, probably yeah. know where it came from um, bring the, the Fed. treasury has an right. account at the Fed yeah and then, and then has you get a trillion dollars and then you know you don't need to worry about the debt limit so I did read this myself to me it, it actually did look plausible I brought it up with Tim Geithner who laughed derisively at me and I think that was the end of the conversation I think that probably should have been the end of the conversation there's no more to it there's no more to it that uh, that is the entire story the entire policy process was Tim Geithner's notoriously derisive <laughs> giggle, which was what this idea deserved. Let me ask a separate question, because there were all kinds of proposed workarounds if, in fact, the Congress got to the point where it couldn't agree to raise the debt limit and the U.S., in fact, ended up breaching it. If we ever got to that point, there were some other proposed workarounds, like what's called the constitutional option, where essentially the president just says, look, I have a constitutional obligation based on, again, some statute somewhere that says I have to take care of this, right? I don't have a choice. Even though the Congress couldn't get its act together and they're all acting crazy, I can't let the U.S. default, so I'll do that. The trillion-dollar coin was another option. Another possibility was whether or not the Treasury could prioritize the order in which it paid out its obligations, and that could help stave off default for at least a little while. All of these were sort of in murky legal territory. They certainly were in murky I don't want to call it constitutional territory, but they all represented a kind of end run on the balance of powers, right, on the appropriate balance of powers. And the president can't really bluff in this situation. He can't admit that these things are being considered because then Congress can essentially call his bluff on and say, fine, then do it. So it was this weird kind of politically intractable thing. We just had to hope that Congress got its act together. Were any of those other workarounds discussed seriously, or was it always a matter of we can't even talk about it? Congress just needs to get its act together and we can't budge. We took a hard look at some of those options and decided that every one of them was some combination of legally dubious, risky for the markets, or operationally infeasible. Legally dubious because it wasn't obvious that the president was allowed to or the Treasury was allowed to borrow in those circumstances. Risky for the markets that if you thought you had a 70-30 legal case and you try to run a treasury auction on a 70-30 legal case, you're not exactly going to get the best interest rates and prices for your auction. It might even fail. And if it failed, that would be even worse. Mm -hmm. And then operationally, some of these prioritization ideas relied on things that the computers, yes, given two years runway, maybe you could reprogram, but that overnight when you're writing tens of millions of checks a month that you couldn't. You got to go. So this is actually uh, my last question. Can you just talk about your writing on future growth rates and the idea that even if we get a recovery in productivity growth, it's still not realistic for us to expect much more than I think two to three percent annual growth in the U.S. Why is that the case? And what if we actually do end up getting like a big spurt of productivity growth, just because maybe that kind of thing happens in cycles, right, for reasons that are hard to understand, and especially acknowledging that the economics of productivity is not really all that well understood. It's a really hard thing to grasp. Right. Well, one of my misfortunate jobs at CEA was we were the lead agency in producing the economic forecast for the budget. So I've spent a lot of time on this. Productivity growth is very hard to predict, but demography is very easy to predict. We know how many 55-year-olds we're going to have next year, the year after, and the year after that. Um, There's a bit of variation due to policy choices like immigration. 
And the biggest problem we have is demography, and that's certainly going to be a big headwind to growth over the next decade. Just to get to 2% GDP growth, we need a big productivity rebound. People think of Robert Gordon as a pessimist. He's projecting, I think, 1.6% productivity growth going forward. That's better than we've seen in the last decade, which is 1.2%. It's a lot better than we've seen in the last five years, which was 0.6%. So even the uber-pessimist in this debate is predicting a productivity growth rebound. I think such a rebound is perfectly reasonable, but you would need to go to historically not unprecedented, but historically rare rates of productivity growth to get our overall growth rate to 3%. And to get our growth rate to 3.5% would take productivity growth, um, the likes of which we've never seen in this country. And in a world where productivity has, in general, been relatively slow since 1973, that is certainly possible. would not say it was impossible, but it would be really irresponsible to build economic plans based on that assumption. You're bumming me out, man. Can you give us a little teaser? What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm uh, doing a book on the decline in the labor force participation rate, the issues that we were talking about earlier. It's an issue that really has seized my mind. But at the same time, I'm, I'm continuing to work on a wide range of other issues, You know, whether it's a specific debate over destination-based cash flow taxation or some of these bigger issues about our, our economic future. Jason Furman, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you. And that is the end of my chat with Jason Furman. Send us an email at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code because we are in the U.S. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about us, and we always appreciate it, and we always notice it when you leave us a review or a rating on there. Show notes for this episode and all prior episodes can be found at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. And finally, the chair of the Council of Alpha Chat Advisors is a position held by Amy Keene, our producer and editor, and it is a lifetime appointment. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.